Hello, everybody. This is Danny, and I'm back for an all-new episode of the all-new, all-awesome podcast. And man, it has been quite a week for me uh, after, you know, a year and a half of really not doing a lot and just sort of working. I shouldn't say not doing a lot, but I should say not being very active. You know, I've been working really hard. I've been writing a lot. I've been working long hours in my job. Um, so I've been busy, very busy over the last year and a half. But I've been basically doing all of that from, you know, a chair in my apartment here in Burbank, California. And uh, this week, however, my family is visiting from the East Coast, from Connecticut, uh, near Hartford, Connecticut, where I'm from originally. And uh, it has been a lot. I've been driving back and forth uh, to my brother's place uh, to meet my parents and and uh, have lunch and dinner with them. Um, so I've been driving a lot on the LA freeways. I've been out and about every day. Uh, so I'm very uh, mentally exhausted from that. But it's also been nice to get out a little bit and not be so confined to uh, the indoors like I have been uh, for a lot of the last year and a half. And, you know, it's it's uh, kind of crazy because this week, while all this is happening, uh, California, you know, uh, removed its uh, restrictions around mask wearing and social distancing in restaurants and other indoor spaces. So all that is happening right as I'm starting to sort of go uh, two restaurants and, and do all of that again. Uh, so it's a lot, it's a lot. Um, you know, I feel like nobody knows what they should be doing. You know, people are very confused still. It's, it's a bit nerve wracking going for, for someone like me to go from being pretty isolated to all of a sudden just out and about, but you know, we're having some good family, uh, quality time. Uh, we're, we're doing, I'm doing a lot of driving, uh, getting out there. So with that being said, the big thing in the world of pop culture has of course been this week, E3. And, uh, so last week I did my whole big E3 preview, uh, talked about what I was excited about, what I was hoping to see, talked a little bit about my past experiences attending E3 in person. And, uh, you know, I was optimistic because I think just like last year, um, as people are still somewhat confined to their home and there hasn't been as much pop culture event stuff like there normally is, there's still no Comic-Con this year. E3 felt like a much needed big event in the world of pop culture for us to be excited about. So I was trying to be very optimistic, but I've got to say, now that E3 is in the rear view uh, mirror, I don't know, man. It was pretty underwhelming, I've got to say, and I don't think I'm alone in that opinion. I mean, look, I was of the, the school of thought that E3, even though in the last couple of years it hasn't been what it once was, I still thought that it was very much needed and, and crucial. Um, 
and that it was it was just a jolt of excitement. And like I said last week, it was something that traditionally set the video game industry apart from the movie industry or TV industry, um, where it just it always generates this level of annual excitement. And it's really kind of a, a rallying cry for the fans. Um, it's something where fans come together and all get excited about the same stuff for, you know, one week a year and just really is a galvanizing event for the video game industry and community. So I, I do think it's, it's still an important thing and something that, um, we should ideally continue to have, but it only really works if the video game uh companies bring something really strong to the table and i think other than nintendo and maybe to a little bit lesser extent microsoft there really was not very much to be excited about in terms of big mainstream games this year and i know it's you know we've gone through covid and things have been you know messed messed with because of covid but even so i mean you know, give us something, even if it's just some teasers. But, um, I, and, and I think a lot of it, like I said before, is less about COVID and it's more just further emphasizing the issues that have been going on for several years now, which is these games are getting too big, too ambitious. The development cycles are way too long. And, Fans are just left waiting forever to get these games. And, you know, I, I, I still think shorter, smaller games are the way to go. And a lot of these companies, I think, are misreading the room in terms of what people want. You know, I think there is a group of fans that always just wants bigger, you know, more open world games, games that take hundreds and hundreds of hours to complete um, that can serve you for, you know, in terms of being persistent um, games as service type of games. Um, there are some fans that want that, but I really don't do not believe that that's the majority of fans. I do believe that there are many fans uh, of games who have actually been turned away because they're not they're not seeing the games that are a 10 hour experience that you can play for half an hour at a time that uh, are single player just contained experiences that don't require you to go online and um, be part of a persistent world um, or don't require you to spend, hundreds of hours just to see some sort of resolution or ending to the game. So I hope that, you know, the game industry looks at the success of things like The Last of Us and Spider-Man and, you know, on the Nintendo side, you know, Mario Odyssey and, and things like that. And, and also the success that a lot of indie games have had, whether it's Hades, um, you know, or, or many others that are that are going for sort of the retro look or smaller budgets and more easy to pick up and play type of gameplay. 
I think the indie space is really filling a void that the AAA space is not necessarily meeting. So, look, I mean, it's no surprise that games like Assassin's Creed um, and other of these huge mega franchises were not at E3 this year in many respects because these games are just not sustainable, especially if you're trying to do a yearly game like Ubisoft does with Assassin's Creed. Um, You just can't keep that up. So, I don't know. I think E3 this year was not the show's finest moment. I think when you combine the fact that there was not a physical show um, to sort of serve as that focal point, there was not the live crowds to sort of energize everything. Combine that with the fact that just what we were shown in terms of new games was not very overwhelming, if anything, underwhelming. Um, I think a lot of people are going to go into that way of thinking of saying, do we need E3 anymore? You know, what's the point if this is all we're getting? We might as well just get, you know, semi-regular Nintendo Directs or Sony State of Plays. Um, and that's the other thing too, is that, I mean, I think I was sort of hoping, like I'm sure others were that maybe Sony or some of the other big companies that were not officially part of E3 would maybe surprise drop some new trailers or, you know, online events, things like that. But we didn't really get anything from Sony or some of the other big, you know, rock star or people like that. So it was a pretty small number of companies, especially big companies that really participated in E3 this year. So it was slim pickings at times. Um, But again, I still think E3 is important. It's something that really we should, instead of just saying, let's just do away with it. I think it should be more about how do we make this better, bigger and better for next year and the year after and going forward? Because I think so many of us have so many fond memories of E3. Uh, It would be a shame to just end it and move on from it because I think if it just does go away, there will be a void. And it will be really sad, I think, for the games industry if it goes away. Um, So... In terms of E3 2021, what was good? Well, let me talk about a couple of games that I thought were, were standouts. Um, so one of, I think only a couple of the games that I actually predicted would be at the show were there in, in any big way, shape, or form. So, you know, for example, Beyond Good or Evil 2, that was one that I really hoped would be there. I think at this point, it's safe to say that game is probably DOA, unfortunately. Um, And there's a couple others like that that just were not going to be at this year's show in retrospect. Um, But one of the games that I did anticipate that I thought did have a really good showing was Elden Ring, which is the new um, action-adventure RPG game. Uh, <clears throat> that George R. R. Martin of Game of Thrones fame is involved with, and from software known for the Soulsborne games, uh, is also the developer of. So there's a lot of anticipation for that one. 
they showed a new trailer for it at E3, and uh, it looked pretty good. I mean, I, I feel like we still don't know a ton about the game, but it looked good. The graphics look cool. The combat looked really cool. Um, we don't know much about the story yet, but again, just knowing that George R. R. Martin is involved seems like maybe the game will then have a sort of story that's a bit above and beyond what we might be used to from from uh, from software. So Elden Ring was looking pretty good. Certainly, it was one of the highlights of E3 this year, and I'm excited for it. I hope it's not of the same challenge level of the Souls games, because those obviously are known for being really hard, really challenging, um, and I know that some people love that. I would love to see something with a little bit more um, manageable gameplay um, for us slightly less hardcore gamers. Um, the other game uh, that I thought would be there that was there was The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild 2. And Nintendo overall had a really good showing. Um, and I'll talk more about why in a second. But in terms of Breath of the Wild 2, we still only got a fairly short trailer. Um, but it looked really good. It looked like more of the same from Zelda, which is great. I mean, because obviously Breath of the Wild was an incredible game, and more of that is perfectly great and worth getting excited about. And it seems like Breath of the Wild 2 is going to have you know, some new uh, combat, some new weapons. Uh, Link seems to have some kind of like robotic arm, which seems like it could be cool. And uh, yeah, I mean, I still think what's, what's amazing is I don't know that we've seen many Switch games to date that are even close to the level of graphics and gameplay and scope and epicness of Breath of the Wild. So I think just getting more of that, there's still not much else on the Nintendo side that can really touch that original Breath of the Wild game. So I'm excited for, for uh, the sequel. Now it is interesting because Nintendo, a lot of people thought they would reveal a new Switch a Switch Pro, as people were dubbing it, at E3. And that was nowhere to be found this year. Um, I don't know. I think if it is if it is coming, it's something maybe we'll hear about more at the end of this year. Um, but I don't know. I think Nintendo has a pretty good situation going with the Switch. Yes, it would be nice if it had better graphics and more horsepower, but I don't know at this point. I kind of feel like maybe just wait another couple years until the next console having some kind of incremental upgrade just feels a little unnecessary to me at this point um but again nintendo did overall have a good showing um at e3 with their nintendo direct breath of the wild 2 looked good and then the second thing was metroid dread so, man, for so long now, people have been wondering, when are we going to get a new Metroid game? It's been forever. Um, Metroid Prime 4 was announced, I believe, at last year's show. And Nintendo did say they're still working on it. But that was essentially a no-show. But in its place, we got a brand new 2D 
side-scrolling Metroid game called Metroid Dread, and it looked great. It looked uh, in the vein of some of the more modern Metroidvania-type games that we've gotten. Uh, obviously, that genre has had a renaissance over the last several years, and you've had, you know, Hollow Knight, Axiom Verge, um, you know, countless games in that vein of Metroidvania, and now we've got the original franchise coming back to, you know, reestablish itself as the premier uh, franchise in this genre. And it looked good. It's something that's much needed on the Switch where there's just been a dearth of sort of more serious, you know, substantive action adventure games uh, in the last few years. So this was very much needed for Switch. You know, the game was shown extensively. It looked good. Samus Aran was was looking uh, in tip top shape. There was like she had like a cool new uh, armor outfit, so that was good. And yeah, it looks like it's going to be really good. And it comes out this year, which is fantastic. Um, so much is still 2022, 2023. So to have this game coming out this year is great. And again, it shows my earlier point of we don't always need these gigantic open world, you know, massive AAA games to, to satisfy. We need more of these, you know, maybe they're 2D, maybe they're side-scrolling, maybe they're more retro games. That doesn't mean that they're not big and epic and fun and challenging. It just means that they're not, they're ambitious, uh, but not ambitious to the point where they're going to have, you know, a five-year development time and take forever to come out and, and just try and, and they're trying to be too much, you know, to too many people. So a game like this, like Metroid Dread, that just seems focused and, you know, very clear on what it's trying to be. I mean, that I think is always very welcome. So Nintendo had a good show. I'll also just mention, um, there's two game series that were announced that are being ported to the Switch for the first time, which I thought was cool. So the Life is Strange series is finally coming to the Switch, where the uh, original Life is Strange and the prequel be, uh, Before the Storm are both being ported to the Switch. And Life is Strange 3 was announced as coming to the Switch, which is really cool. Um, I feel like that's a perfect series for the Switch. And if you have only a Switch and you've not played Life is Strange, make sure you get on that because they're some of the absolute best uh, adventure games that are out there um, in the style of, you know, graphic adventures of the past from LucasArts and Sierra. Um, they're sort of like that with a modern twist. Very cool coming of age, teenage uh, type of, of stories. Some of my favorite games of the last several years. So check out Life is Strange. And then the Danganronpa series is coming to Switch, which is a very cool series of Japanese kind of murder mystery games that are really nuts, really crazy, very Japanese, but a lot of fun. And another series that just makes a lot of sense on Switch. So, you know, a lot of just good announcements from, from the Nintendo Direct. Um, I will say on the Microsoft side... 
there wasn't a ton that really thrilled me. I think the big, you know, the big game that was talked about at Microsoft conference came from Bethesda as predicted. You know, we thought maybe it would be the new Elder Scrolls game that was more talked about, but actually it was Starfield, which was described at the conference as Elder Scrolls in space, which sounds pretty awesome. We didn't really get a ton about this game. I think we only saw really kind of a a scene setting sort of trailer, not really any gameplay or anything, but just the premise alone of Bethesda doing this big RPG in the vein of a Skyrim, but in outer space. So essentially I'm guessing Skyrim meets Mass Effect. Sounds amazing. And look, I mean, I'm more of a PlayStation guy. I don't think I'm going to get an Xbox anytime soon, but this is one of those games that will make me sad I don't have an Xbox for sure is Starfield. So that was probably the big giant gorilla game that Microsoft and Bethesda had at this year's E3. Um, and then there were a lot of good indie games too. So there's more than I could possibly mention, but Microsoft did have uh, some really cool ones at their show. One that I think stood out to a lot of people was this game called Replaced that just looks like a sort of retro, you know, eight or 16 bit style side scroller, which there are a lot of nowadays, but this one in particular just looked really cool, had an awesome art style, a lot of sort of vintage eighties, you know, very neon tinted type of art style. And it just looked cool. Um, So replaced is one I'm definitely looking forward to. Um, I think it's a timed exclusive for Xbox. So hopefully it eventually comes to PlayStation and or Switch as well. Um, But yeah, that was definitely a standout indie game. And there were a lot of good indie games for sure uh, at E3. So if nothing else, you know, I think E3 is a good chance for indie developers to sort of sneak in and, and show what they've got. So that, that was some of the highlights to me. I think, you know, there were, there were certainly some misses. I mean, I won't spend too much time on it, but, you know, um, there was a new Guardians of the Galaxy game shown from Square Enix that, uh, I don't know, we'll see how it shapes up. It definitely reminded me a bit of their Avengers game where it had that weird uncanny valley thing of... The characters and the world is very hyper-realistic in terms of aesthetic, and yet they don't look like the actors or the characters from the movies, which I just think is so weird and such a strange visual choice. Just do comic book-style graphics, if you can. Why does it need to be hyper-realistic, especially for a fun, kind of colorful, goofy franchise like guardians of the galaxy why are they going in this sort of grim dark you know brown and gray hyper realistic type of aesthetic just makes no sense to me and it just seemed a little clunky and i don't know we'll see how it shapes up but it didn't super excite me from the original trailer 
And then the other one that I think has become, you know, this one, it might turn out really good. I don't know. But, you know, Final Fantasy Origins, which, you know, I'm, I'm still enough of a Final Fantasy fanboy and nerd that I'll be excited for anything with the Final Fantasy name on it. But, you know, this is sort of like, it's taking the story of the original Final Fantasy game from back in the day on the NES and it's transplanting it into a more modern sort of souls, you know, third person action adventure type of game. And it looked okay, but I think it's one of those things where the story and some of the dialogue was just so goofy and like everyone's laughing that the main character in the dialogue said the word chaos about 5,000 times within like the three minute trailer. Um, so you get some of that goofy Japanese, like weird translation stuff. And, you know, I don't know. It looked okay, but it's not, I think this is the thing. I mean, if you're an old school uh, video game person, like I am, you know, back in the day, if a new final fantasy thing was announced, that was a jaw dropping moment guaranteed because that brand had such a cachet to it and meant so much. Um, that you know now i think has been a little bit watered down where there's a lot of mobile games and there's spin-offs and there's final fantasy games that aren't true mainline final fantasy games and i don't know so part of me i see final fantasy i get excited then you see something that looks maybe only okay and it's kind of frustrating so we'll see but i think those were two sort of kind of disappointments of the show um but yeah like i said i really hope that next year e3 comes back bigger and better i hope you know more is done to really make sure that all the big video game publishers and developers have a presence i hope there's a physical show again and that it's safe to have that again um and in the near term i hope that sony does some kind of big showcase soon because even last year if i'm remembering i think right before e3 or right around e3 sony did a big state of play that had a lot of really cool stuff in it and revealed the ps5 um i think it was sorely missed you know sony was sorely missed uh in this year's e3 so hopefully in the next couple weeks they drop a new state of play and have some cool stuff to show us. Um, but without Sony, it didn't quite feel like like E3. Um, and I'm a big Sony fan. I always love their games. So I'm hoping we get something from them soon. So with that said, that's all I've got to say about E3 for this year. Let me know what you think. Comment on my Twitter, at Danny Barham, uh, or on Facebook. Find us at the all-new, all-awesome Facebook page. Um, and let, let me know what you think. So I'll be right back with my picks of the week. All right. So for my first pick of the week, uh, I was very excited this past Thursday. Uh, I went to the movies, to the theater for the first time since before the pandemic um 
and it was great. Uh, I went to the AMC Burbank 16, one of my favorite theaters, uh, pretty close by to me too. And I've probably seen more movies in that theater than any other uh, theater ever in my life. Um, because, you know, since I've first moved to LA in 2005, that's been probably my home base theater. Uh, I've seen countless movies there, big and small. And they have some of the best screens, I will say, of any theater. I think that's why a lot of people really have a affinity for it, even though it's an AMC and an AMC is a big chain. Uh, this particular AMC, the Burbank 16, um, I think feels a little different just because it has an IMAX screen that's really um, pristine quality. Um, and it has a Dolby theater that's really, really great too. It's just amazing uh, audio and visuals. So I went to the theater uh, and I saw In the Heights. And uh, yeah, the whole experience was cool. It was great to be back in the theater. We saw it in the Dolby theater, which was awesome. And as soon as I saw that picture and heard the sound, I was like, man, you cannot replicate this being at home. Um, this is a whole other level. And it was so nice to be back. The one thing I'm just going to say, though, that's so frustrating to me is that when we went last Thursday, it was great. You know, we were in this Dolby theater. It was very big, expansive. There was uh, only some of the seats were filled up because of restrictions that the theater placed on what seats could be sold. So there was no one on either side of us. There was plenty of space. Everyone was distanced. Now, all those rules are lifted. And it's like, just when I was getting comfortable going to the theater, now I'm worried about it again because now there's not the same distancing between seats like there was. And I find that very frustrating. And, you know, especially during this transitional time, I don't understand why we can't still have distancing at the theater. If you're not going to have distancing, then you know, why can't we verify that people have been vaccinated? You've got to do, I think, one or the other. Um, it gives everyone peace of mind. It creates a safe environment. And it worked really well. Like I said, this past week, it was great. And I felt perfectly safe. So it really sucks that it's changing so seemingly prematurely. Um, but we'll see what happens. And I hope I feel comfortable still going to the movies because man, in the next several weeks, I would love to see fast and furious, uh, nine on the big screen. I want to see black widow on the big screen. Uh, so I hope it gets figured out, but in any case, in the Heights, I thought it was great. It was so fantastic. Um, it was actually a really good movie to see on the big screen because, uh, you know, John Chu, who directed it, he just did a great job of making it feel very big screen worthy. It had just some fantastic, um, you know, song and dance sequences and just really spectacular choreography. Um, there was there was parts that were just visually really, really cool. Um, including, you know, you probably saw it from the trailer, 
just some of the scenes where they're sort of in a swimming pool doing a big, a big musical number. Some of those scenes, that swimming pool is one of my favorites, that, that whole sequence, but are just so impeccably directed and um, have so much energy and color and vibrancy. And that's how kind of I would characterize the whole movie in a way where John Chu just really directs the heck out of it and really, you know, makes this a musical that also feels very theatrical and cinematic. Um, so I like that a lot. And, you know, this is a this is a movie that was based on a musical from about 10 years ago uh, that was created by Lin-Manuel Miranda prior to him doing Hamilton. Um, actually, I guess a little more than 10 years ago, more like 15 years ago. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just sort of a classic fable type of story um, about a group of people in Washington Heights, New York, um, all for the most part members of kind of the, the Latino community there. And, um, you know, it sort of, it sort of centers on, um, you know, one, one character in particular who, uh, you know, is, has this dream to move back to the Dominican Republic where he's originally from and open up sort of a beachside bar there and start a new life. Um, but at the same time, he loves Washington Heights. He loves the community. He has his family there, his friends, and he's starting to, you know, fall in love with this woman too. So there's sort of a question. The, the question throughout a lot of the movie is, will he move to, to, the Dominican Republic or will he stay where he is and kind of embrace this new life that he's made for himself? Um, and, you know, there's a bunch of characters who all sort of have, um, you know, their own goals and their own subplots. And there's just so many, there's not a lot of like big name actors in the movie, but uh, probably the only big, like reckon immediately recognizable name for most people will be Jimmy Smith's. Um, but there's so many talented people. Um, I did want to say that the main actor, uh, Anthony Ramos is fantastic. Um, he just is really good and, and does a great job with all the music. Um, and is very charismatic. Um, I thought that. Um, the main female lead, uh, Melissa Barrera, was fantastic as Vanessa. Um, and it just sort of goes on and on. Um, I'm trying to find the name of this one actor. Uh, there's a character of Abuela in the movie who's kind of like the de facto grandma for a lot of these characters, even though she's not technically their grandma. But I guess she... Um, this actress is actually one of the only ones in the movie who also played that same role in the original musical on Broadway. And she is just absolutely a show stealer. Um, and it's one of those things where she's sort of done up to feel like this very grandmotherly character. Um, and yet when she goes to sing, I mean, man, her voice is just, incredible and booming and um you know really uh just phenomenal and oh i just found it so the character of abuela claudia is played by olga Meredith. 
Um, I may not be pronouncing that right, so I apologize. But again, she was in the original Broadway musical of In the Heights, and she reprises the role here. And just, you know, if I had to guess, thinking about this movie's Oscar chances, I think she might be a shoo-in for Best Supporting Actress because she's she's so good in this. Um, Stephanie Beatriz shows up from Brooklyn Nine-Nine in a supporting role, and she's a lot of fun in the movie, by the way. Um, but just up and down, you've got Corey Hawkins playing this character, Benny, uh, Leslie Grace playing uh, Nina, um, and, and they're all really talented, really good with the music, and just have great voices. And the musical numbers in this are just so well done. You know, they're that, they're that signature Lin-Manuel style of many of them have elements of rap and hip-hop, um, and yet they have, uh, you know, a lot of them mix that with more traditional sort of Broadway tunes. And it's all very uplifting and energetic and inspirational. And again, this is sort of just a very classic kind of fable, fair, you know, modern fairy tale type of story. Not that there's anything magic in it per se, but there is that slight element of like magical realism and it's sort of a classic like, you know, romance and uh, just story about, you know, um, recognizing your home and your community and embracing, you know, one's adopted home and one's adopted community. And, you know, of course, it's great to see the representation that this movie has and the way that it puts the spotlight on the Latino community in a very, again, inspirational way, you know, that that certainly does draw attention to some of the struggles and challenges that members of that community face. But again, it's not only about that. And um, there's still a lot of, you know, uh, multi-dimensional-ism to, to the characters. And, um, oh, one other actor I want to mention is this guy, Gregory Diaz IV, um, who <laughs> was, he was actually, I, I realized he was in the movies uh, Vampires in Brooklyn that I had watched last year, um, and he was good in that, but he plays sort of the teenage, you know, little, you know, uh, he's, he's the cousin of Anthony Ramos's character, but almost sort of like the little brother in a lot of ways, so he plays this character, Sonny, who's just is such a standout in the movie and, and so charismatic and funny. Um, and he's really just a standout too. So I hope he maybe gets some award recognition, but yeah, I mean, this is just, um, it's different from Hamilton a lot in a lot of ways. You know, it's, it's set in the present day and it's a little less, I would say jokey. Um, it doesn't have the same level of, jokes and humor and quippiness, I guess, of Hamilton um, plays a little more straight, although there is a lot, there is certainly humor in, in the movie, um, but it has that same spirit and that same energy and that same sort of inspirational, big, you know, um, emotional feeling like Hamilton does. So Lin-Manuel is just so talented and in the way he composes and crafts his songs in this in this production um, is so so amazing, 
And then just, uh, you know, Justin Chu, or sorry, John Chu, uh, the director, he just runs with that and gives it this whole new visual level. So I really like the movie. I recommend it highly. Um, and and I would say go see it in a theater if you feel like you can do so safely. It is on HBO Max. But I do think this movie is very worthy of being released in a theater. Um, so, so I hope people get the chance to check it out on the big screen. So In the Heights was really a big fan. I think it definitely will get some awards uh, discussion later uh, next year. But, but really liked it a lot. So with that said, I'll be right back with my second pick of the week. All right. So my second pick of the week is a big Marvel show, a new Marvel show that I have been really anticipating for a long time. And that show is Loki. And, you know, I, I, I mean, Loki is probably my favorite MCU character. And I think throughout all the different movies he's appeared in, you know, the Thor movies, the Avengers movies, Loki has been the character, one of the characters that I just always look forward to seeing more of because Tom Hiddleston is so good in the role and he's easily, I think the best villain in the MCU. And and overall, he's probably my favorite character uh, in the Marvel movies because Tom Hiddleston, again, just totally owns in the role is so great, brings so much to that role. And I just, you know, you can endlessly watch him because he's so good as Loki. Um, so I was very excited for the show and I was curious kind of, um, what they were going to do with Loki because spoiler alert for the movies, Loki in the MCU was dead. And so, uh, you know, through some time travel shenanigans, he is back. He's got his own show. And uh, I really liked the first episode. Uh, I thought that, first of all, it goes without saying that Tom Hiddleston was in excellent form as Loki. He stepped right back into the character like no time had passed. And... Uh, you know, having the spotlight on Loki just allowed us to get even more from Hiddleston and really gave him the chance to shine. And I think what I like about this show, I mean, this feels like it's going to be Marvel's version of Doctor Who. And I think that makes sense because Hiddleston is that sort of uh, snarky, you know, sort of all-knowing British uh, mystical character. And they threw him into this kind of time travel scenario. And so it totally makes sense for this to be this sort of uh, very whimsical, uh, very sci-fi-ish type of show in the vein of a Doctor Who. And sure enough, the first episode of Loki had a ton of banter, a ton of wit, a ton of, you know, Loki being snarky and, uh, you know, being Loki, basically. 
and uh and also i mean it really embraced just sort of the comic bookiness of it all um because you know i think i I think it's a tribute to kind of where we're at now with these marvel movies where you don't even have to be in one specific genre anymore and i think that's always a staple of comic books is that part of the fun of marvel or dc is that you can do just crazy stuff you can have a character who's a magical character be on a sci-fi adventure and have mixing of genres and types of characters and you know that's part of the fun is playing in that sandbox and doing crazy things with the toys in that sandbox and i think that's what makes loki so fun out of the gate is that you're taking this mystical magical character who is from you know asgard and from the thor mythology and you're putting him in this very sci-fi type of storyline involving time travel and you know real science fictiony stuff and so you get this instantly very fish out of water type of story which again from a character standpoint is great because you have loki a character who's used to being in complete control and knowing everything about everything and all of a sudden he's thrown into this very you know this scenario that's very out of his wheelhouse and dealing with characters who are you know completely omnipotent in a way that's extremely different from him and his power and he's just completely out of his element and it's like basically he's been transported from one comic book into a totally different comic book which is so much fun and just again creates so many um such a great scenario for tom hiddleston to kind of just work his magic with and uh i'm very curious of course just from a plot standpoint of what all this time travel stuff will mean for the mcu you know will it lead to any characters other than loki being brought back that maybe were dead or were from a previous time you know from another time within the mcu um will it change anything through time travel that we've already seen as as canon uh you know once you get into time travel in a comic book world there's sort of endless possibilities so that i'm very curious about there's also a lot of hints about who the main villain is and so i think similar to wandavision they're playing their cards sort of close to the vest um but we'll see how it unfolds certainly there's already a lot of theories and then just from a character and cast standpoint i mean owen wilson playing this sort of all-knowing but yet very uh just sort of uh straight-laced worker bee type of character in mobius that's gonna be a lot of fun Owen Wilson is just being peak Owen Wilson and you match a character who's that strong of a personality with, you know, Loki and Tom Hiddleston. I mean, that's just a great match and it's going to be a lot of fun to see them play off of each other. Um, You've got Gugu uh, Mbatha-Ra who, 
you know, is a fantastic actress who just had a very small part in the first episode. I have to wonder if she's going to end up having a much bigger, more important role, given how good of an actor she is. Um, And just to caveat, by the way, I've only so far seen the first episode of the show, probably right after I record this, I'll see the second episode, but I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, You know, Richard E. Grant is apparently going to be showing up. I'm a big fan of him. So we'll see what role he has to play. Um, But there's a lot of potential there. And then just visually, man, this show had some just, this is just a pilot alone had some jaw-dropping scenes there's one scene in particular where loki is sort of in this you know uh headquarters of the of the kind of time police or whatever you want to call them uh the tva um and uh you know they sort of reveal the city that they live in and there's just this really cool like steampunk uh sort of retro futurist type of cityscape that is revealed behind loki and it's just such a cool aesthetic and uh, a lot of fun and sort of leaning into that whole doctor who uh, type of vibe as well so um it's only you know the first episode but already i feel like this is going to be a really fun show unpredictable lots of twists and just a showcase for the great Tom Hiddleston and, and the writing is really sharp too. Um, and, you know, I feel like already in just that first episode, there were several instantly iconic bits of dialogue. Um, and as a writer, I feel like you always strive to create those moments. So, you know, when Loki talks about his glorious purpose in that first episode, which is also the episode title, by the way, but the way Tom Hiddleston says it and, you know, the relish that he has when he delivers that line and the twinkle in his eye, I mean, just iconic. And uh, there were a couple bits like that. They were just really good and, and strong dialogue and strong writing. So uh, I'm really excited for more Loki. I think that just by virtue of the character, this will probably end up being my favorite marvel tv series to date um and i i don't know i feel like um a lot of these seasons have felt like they're going to be sort of one-offs but this premise and this character i sort of hope it's a little bit more long term and that this could be a kind of show that runs for multiple seasons because it just feels like there's endless potential here so here's hoping and definitely check out loki It's on Disney Plus. If you're a Marvel head or just a nerd like me, you've probably seen it, but just wanted to give it my stamp of approval. So with that said, I'll be right back with my third and final pick of the week. All right. So my final pick of the week this week is, well... I want to give a shout out to one of my all-time favorite talk show hosts and one of my all-time favorite late night talk shows. And that is, of course, Conan. Now, I wanted to do that because there's only two more weeks of 
Conan, the TV show on TBS. And I'm super sad about this. Um, I've talked about this, I'm sure, before on the podcast, but I am a longtime fan of Conan. Um, I was a huge fan in the early years when I was kind of growing up, and I just clearly recognized that this was not your typical late night talk show host. And he had a very off, offbeat, you know, absurdist sense of humor that I loved. And then I went from being kind of a casual fan of Conan to a hardcore fan in 2004 when I was fortunate enough to intern for Late Night with Conan O'Brien on NBC. And it's still to this day one of the coolest things that I've ever been able to do. And I look back on it very fondly and... It was truly a master class in comedy. Um, so this was the summer of 2004. Um, and I, I was really lucky to be there during a period that a lot of people now talk about as just arguably a peak period for Late Night with Conan O'Brien, you know, where he introduced the Walker Texas, uh, Texas Ranger lever. While I was there, he introduced a number of uh, great bits. Pierre Bernard's Recliner of Rage. Um, and the list goes on and on. And it was just, he was so funny. I mean, he's always been funny, but I feel like he really took it to another level during during that, that period. And that was in, so, so that was just a great period of Conan, but then as well um just being an intern there and observing conan and observing the writers you know uh and and watching the rehearsals it it really was a master class where you would see the the way that conan would go over the writing and tweak things to absolute perfection for maximum comedy uh potential with every sketch every bit every monologue joke. And he was just such a genius at finding exactly how to make something as funny as possible. And also just a perfectionist in terms of the way he did that. And there were so many talented writers on the show. Some of them who are still at the show, some who have gone on to careers uh, as, as big you know, comedians in their own right, like Dimitri Martin, who was a writer during the time I was an intern, and now, of course, is a one of the best stand-up comedians out there. Um, so being an intern actually turned me from a more casual fan of Conan into a super fan of Conan. And ever since then, I've watched, you know, Conan, I've watched or recorded Conan every night, since he, you know, had his late night with Conan O'Brien show, went on to briefly host The Tonight Show and that whole debacle. Then when he went to TBS and started uh, The Conan Show. And uh, I'm a huge fan. I like his podcast now. Um, interesting fact, by the way, um, his assistant, Sona, who uh, has now become kind of a mini celebrity uh, because she has such a great rapport with Conan and 
joins him on the podcast and does bits on the show. And she's a super funny person. Uh, she and I were actually NBC pages together. So uh, we go way back to that to that period when we were both in the page program. Um, and so, and, and also, by the way, I remember, of course, from when I was an intern, interacting with the one and only Jordan Schlansky, who has now become quite the uh, internet celebrity because of his hilarious uh, remote pieces with Conan on his show. And uh, yeah, so I love Conan. I love his, you know, I loved his old stuff. I still think he's as good today as he ever was in a lot of ways. Um, and of course, his show is winding down and he's going to have a new show on HBO Max, you know, where we don't really know exactly what the format will be. Apparently, it'll be more of a sort of variety format and less of a talk show format. Um, but to me, Conan, uh, you know, I've, I love his sketches. So more of that kind of comedy from him is certainly appreciated and something that I will look forward to with the new show. However, um, I've, what I've always loved about Conan as a talk show host is that there's certain guests, when he has a guest who's also, who's also very funny, they will have an amazing chemistry and just often produce hilarious segments together. And so, you know, everyone from Jeff Goldblum to Kevin Nealon to Norm MacDonald to Patton, excuse me, Patton Oswald, Sarah Silverman, Aubrey Plaza, um, Tig Notaro, the list goes on and on. But those, you know, particular breed of Conan guests who he clearly likes and respects and has great comedic chemistry with, when those guests are on the show, that's when it's really a delight to watch the interview segments. Um, and so the really nice thing about this week and next week is that they're bringing on a lot of those classic Conan guests. Um, this week so far, they've had you know, Patton Oswald, Sarah Silverman, Martin Short, um, Kevin Nealon. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to be so sad when it's the final week, but I, I am looking forward to some of those, those favorite guests on as well. Apparently they've already announced that Jack Black will be the final uh, guest, which will be a lot of fun, I'm sure. But, yeah, I would highly recommend if you're a Conan fan tuning in for these last two weeks. Um, for one thing, you know, throughout the pandemic, Conan's been doing his show at the Largo Theater, the famous comedy theater here in L.A., but he's been doing it in front of empty audiences. As of this week, he finally has a live audience again, which is really cool to see. And Conan's always been great with live audiences. And... Um, you know, as an aside, I think Conan is the best ever at doing a joke and then reacting to the joke in a funny way. You know, it almost didn't matter, for example, how funny or not funny the jokes in his monologue were, because the best part wasn't the joke a lot of times. It was the reaction to the joke. And Conan is just the master, the absolute master at doing that kind of thing. And having fun with the audience and subverting expectations and 
just um, being self-effacing and and making that really funny and part of his act. So you now get to see Conan do these live shows from the Largo with great guests, with a live audience. Andy Richter, of course, is there. Uh, and Andy is always great. I'm a huge, huge fan of Andy Richter. And the one thing from when I was an intern that I wish was different was that I was there during the point where Andy Richter was not part of the show and the show was hilarious and great, but I think it could have been even better if Andy was there. Cause to me, he does add a lot to the show. And when he finally did come back, uh, I thought it really added a lot, but, um, Man, I'm going to be sad to see the talk show end. I feel like it's been such a consistent, consistently funny and entertaining show for, you know, years now, for almost 30 years. Um, And, you know, ever since I was a teenager, I've been a super fan, uh, like I said. And, you know, Conan has been just one of my biggest inspirations you know, from a comedy perspective, from a writing perspective, and really just uh, overall as a person where I've just really admired the way that Conan has gone on to such success and fame, um, but also, as far as I can tell, at least managed to be a very kind and, uh, you know, a really inspirational person in a lot of ways that has meant a lot, a lot to me in, in terms of my career and then, you know, personally and professionally. So um, I would not be where I am today if not for that internship at Conan. And I would not be the kind of comedy fan or, or entertainment industry fan that I am without the influence that Conan has had. So it's going to be the end of an era. I'm really going to miss the, the show. But I'm, I'm hoping that the new uh, HBO Max Endeavor is, is great. And my best of luck to Conan and, uh, you know, everyone else that works on the show. Uh, so check out Conan this week on TBS. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be the end of an era. So that is my final pick of the week. And with that, I say... Have a great one, stay safe, and I'll be back next week with more.